Welcome to Bethel Baptist Church Podcast. Today on December 4th, 2022, we partake in communion. In preparation for that, we look at the question, why did Jesus come to die? And one of the answers being to please the Father. Uh, We have communion. We're doing kind of a new thing each time we have communion. We're looking at one of the reasons why Jesus died. And this morning we're going to look at to please his Father. That can kind of be a little bit of a conflicting thought. We're going to kind of explore that this morning. Uh, I titled the message, Love and Sacrifice, a a paradox kind of going on. There, paradox means a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may actually prove to be well-founded or true. And so we're going to investigate that a little bit, explain that, and find the truth in that. But I want to turn to Genesis chapter 22. When you think of stories that you get conflicted on when you read, this is one of them for me. And so we're going to read this story, uh, or at least a good portion of it, Genesis 22, 1 through 14. And I'll pause partway through and make some narrative as we go through it. Now it came to pass, in those days, Caesar, oh, that's a different story. It kind of starts out feeling that way, though. There's actually a lot of foreshadowing that happens in this passage. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Let's think a little bit, remember the story. Okay, the passage tells us Isaac is his only son, but Moses had him when he was of super mature age, right? So much so that uh, Sarah, Sarai, laughed when she said she would have a child. Oh, that's impossible, right? Uh, Some time has actually passed since then. One of the scholars that I was reading from in preparation of this thought perhaps up to 20 years or even more Uh, And so Isaac wasn't an infant at this time, uh, but an adult by our standards, basically. I say all that to say, if Isaac leaves the picture, there's probably not going to be another child, at least from the human perspective. And also, what has been promised to Abraham through Isaac, the threefold blessing of land, many descendants, and that all the earth would be blessed through Isaac those descendants talking about Jesus. Anyways, he says, and, and he said, now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. What? That's not what Isaac's destiny is. Or do you sit, are you like, Okay. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. He says he loves him. He's his only son. Why would he do that? Why would he sacrifice his only son? It's a startling command. It seems irrational. It might bring up some emotion or concerns of ethics or morality even in that. It brings a lot of tension I watched this YouTube channel. It's about cars. You can ask me about it later. The guy has all these little coin phrases, and one of them is, well, help me understand. Whenever something's 
confusing to him. That's where I'm at in this passage. You read that Isaac is supposed to be offered as a sacrifice. Well, help me understand that. You'd expect some hesitation from Abraham, right? Or some, "Mm, God, I don't really know if this is the best option, right? And we don't see any of that. And that's actually a little bit interesting because Abraham does do that in other stories. Think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how many times Abram comes to God and says, God, are you really sure? How about for this many people? And he comes back to God multiple times in that story. But this time, as we go read on, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of the young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder and worship, super key phrase right here, we will come back to you. Now Abraham knows he's supposed to sacrifice Isaac. How are they, how are they both going to come back? And when I was reading that, you know, you try to explain it and be like, well, maybe he was just thinking I'll bring back his body. No, no, sacrifices are a burnt sacrifice. It's devoured. So if he's coming back, Somehow he's going to come back alive. And thankfully, Scripture doesn't leave us wondering. Hebrews 11 uh, talks about that and even talks about some of the motivation and reveals that Abraham was so confident uh, in the permanency of God's promise that he believed if Isaac were to actually be sacrificed, he would raise him from the dead. Or even from verse 8 in this passage, that God would provide a sacrifice or a substitute for Isaac. And so Abraham takes, as we continue reading, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You know, something's missing here. What's going on? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So at this point, I don't know when it exactly happens. Isaac's really clear on what's happening here. And his aged father binds him. So there was submission going on on Isaac's part, not just on Abraham. And Abraham stretches out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now let's take a time out. At this moment, how real is Abraham's faith in God? I mean, we talk about faith, we talk about trust, we use the chair illustration. You can say you have faith, in a chair, but you don't actually have faith until you sit in the chair. This is like some really high-stakes chair-sitting situation. It's not just a chair that's sitting on the ground where if the chair breaks, you fall two feet. It's like a chair suspended out from Empire State Building, and you're going to sit on that, and it's just tied to a couple ropes, and you're trusting that that will hold you, or you Wow, that option is really bad. I don't even really want to look down at that, right? This was really high stakes. Abraham's focus was very sharp. His trust in God 
was intense at this moment. But the angel of the Lord called to him in that last moment before he sacrifices his son and says, Abraham, Abraham. So he says, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God. A plus on the test, right? Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham took the ram and burnt it up, or and offered it up for a burnt offering, another key phrase, instead of his son, in place of his son, in substitution of the son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. There's a lot of tension in this story, right? It's thick. If you were there observing it, it'd be a, whoo, that was a close one. You feel the emotions as you read. I, I play guitar, so I think when I think of tension, I think of a guitar string being pulled between two forces, and you've kind of got that going on in the story. On one hand, you've got the love of the father and the son, and on the other hand, you have Moses trusting in God. It's kind of that paradox between the love of the Son, the sacrifice for God that creates that tension. It's not the only place in Scripture where I feel like tension like this might be felt. That phrase, instead of his Son, introduces the idea of substitutionary atonement. That which would ultimately be fulfilled in the death of Christ. And last month when we had communion, we considered Jesus as that wrath absorber. Do you remember that? We read the passage Isaiah 53, and it talks about how, he ple- how it pleased the Lord to crush his son. It pleased God to put Jesus to grief. It pleased God to sacrifice him. Do you kind of get that? Help me understand that. How does that please God to do that to his own son? There's a lot of shadowing between these two passages. Did you know that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem uh, is on the approximate site of Abraham's offering? In the story of Jesus, when he was crucified, the centurion was... There's different places where people think Jesus was crucified. little sidebar. Where he was, for sure, the centurion was able to see the temple veil torn in two. They were in close enough... Jesus was crucified, what I'm trying to say, in close enough, in eyesight, essentially, of where this sacrifice of Abraham would have taken place. These two stories collide at multiple levels. Let's think through that sacrifice in a couple passages. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ also loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. That part is easy to grapple with. A sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. He sacrificed his only son, and that was a sweet-smelling aroma to him. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to 
His, speaking of God, God's own purpose and the grace which has been given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So that that sacrifice was God's plan all along. And as we read before, Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. This is astonishing, right? The wrath absorber is the same one that's infinitely loved by God. Why would he choose the wrath absorber to be that one? The substitution of Jesus for sinners has been God's plan all along, and this plan pleases him. Once again, astonishing. To me, this sounds more of like a worst-case scenario thing. Okay, if it's... if. If Jesus is the only one that can do it, I guess that's what we'll do. It doesn't sound like a plan A option at first look. So here we see this paradox again. How can God, sac- how can God sacrificing his own son be pleasing to him? Maybe you feel tension in understanding that. Do you ever read a book where the author makes a mistake? And then they like kill off a main character or something, and you're like, you can't do that. That's, I like that character. That's kind of where you come in this story with Jesus. Pick, pick a different character. God, don't sacrifice your son, your only son, yet who else is worthy? Jesus is the only one that can do that. Maybe you're Considering we, you know, we talked about it in terms of the Isaac and Abraham sacrifice story. Maybe you're thinking of this in terms of God in sacrificing his only son. Well, help me understand this. It might be a little difficult because you have to consider two questions. Is it morally wrong for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? I'll just say this. Abraham didn't seem to think so. Is it morally wrong for God to plan to sacrifice Jesus in the place of sinners? That's not very fair. It's kind of the whole point of it. It's kind of why Jesus is the worthy sacrifice. You see, it's actually not that difficult to explain these, to, ex- to answer these questions. You see, the story isn't about Isaac. And the gospel becomes clearer when we see that both the gospel and the story of Abraham and Isaac are about God. Salvation is about God. We think about it about, oh, it's about us. Or maybe in the crucifixion, we think so much it's about Jesus. It's about God. Why did Jesus die? To please his Father. Our salvation, Jesus' sacrifice, God's plan from the beginning isn't so much about us, it's about God's glory. And it begins to make a lot more sense when you view it that way. It begins to be understandable. We begin to get a bigger picture of God and who he is. Remember, God's love for us isn't conditioned on us, very thankfully, right? 
or there would be not very much love there. His love for us is about him. Jesus' sacrifice for us is also about God. So why did Jesus come to die? To please his Father. It pleased God to sacrifice his infinitely loved Son, yes, on our behalf, but for God's glory. If that's true, then how does that affect my life as a Christ follower? What's my life about? I thought of this illustration last night at 12.30 in the morning, so hopefully it makes as much sense now as it did then. Yesterday, I was reading, as often I read to my boys, and it's not always super entertaining material. It's like I've read this book like a thousand times. It's actually really funny how passionate I can get about how much I detest a children's book or one that, uh, this is really acceptable. Go pick out a book. No, go pick out a different one. I do not want to read that book. Children's books are for who? Children. Oh, that's revelational. You see, you're not supposed to enjoy reading the children's book. You're supposed to enjoy your child enjoying you reading the children's book. The book's not meant for you. It's meant for the child. And so who you read for in this illustration matters. Because if I read for me, it's going to be really boring. And I experience that sometimes where I'm like, oh, this is such a drag. I hate doing this. But I find satisfaction when I read for my children's satisfaction, when I see that they're enjoying this, that they're learning from the story. When I read for them, then I find satisfaction. Let's turn that illustration a little bit to the spiritual. Who I live for matters. It's actually like super essential. Your perspective changes how you view life. Just like your perspective and who you're reading the books for changes, whether that's an enjoyable or not so much thing, your perspective changes how you view life. Did, did anything change about the books? No, it's still the same story, it's still the same book, but I can enjoy it because my child enjoys it, or I cannot because I'm focused on it. When we focus on the right thing in life, it changes our experience. It doesn't change the events of our life, most likely, but it changes how we view them. Because when we live our life focused on God and His glory, suddenly we can find satisfaction. But if we focus on ourselves in that, you're never going to find it. John Piper's kind of famous for this idea, at least for me, if I think of John Piper, this is the quote I think of. I'm most satisfied when God is most glorified. So glorifying God is my purpose and that which also satisfies me most. Life is about God. It's where satisfaction is found, in glorifying him. It's the whole point of the Bible. It's the, it's the point of the story of Isaac in that sacrifice about God's glory. It's the point of the gospel. So how does this truth change how I view life? If the most significant thing in all of history wasn't perhaps primarily about me, 
that might change how I view the little tiny details in life. Self-centeredness is so ingrained, right? It's that sin nature, and it just, it just blows my mind how often I'm like, wow, I was so self-centered in that situation. When you get a flat tire, who's that about? I am so happy. How can this bring God glory? But it can. What about if my retirement takes a hit? Who's that about? What about if my boss mistreats me? Who's that about? What about if my spouse doesn't live up to my expectations? How about when someone asks about success in my life? Who's that about? How about when I get extra cash? What happens to that cash? What's that cash about? What about if you find extra time? I know that's a rare thing. What do you spend it on? Who's that about? The details in my life, are they about me or are they about God? And we're going to take a turn now as we start to look to partake in communion. Don't make communion about you. We partake in communion for the purpose to be reminded of Jesus, to be reminded of God. What we remember at communion needs to be more about God's glory and probably less about me. If you're looking, if you're considering communion rightly, it should do some things. It should lead you to worship, worship of God. It should flood your heart with adoration for God. It should produce things that glorify God. God's plan Jesus' sacrifice, and yes, our salvation is pleasing in God's sight. It reveals God's incredible love, and it reveals Jesus' incredible submission to the Father in a way that brings glory to the Father. So our salvation, it brings glory to God. Jesus' submission on the cross, that brings glory to God. It should increase an overwhelming debt of gratitude upon us, something that we would do well to be reminded of often as we do at communion. One quote before we sing a couple time, sing a song to prepare us for communion. Oh, that we might worship the terrible wonder of the love of God. It's not sentimental, it's not simple. For our sake, God did the impossible. He poured out his wrath on his son, the one whose submission made him infinitely unworthy to receive it. So who should have received the wrath of God? Anyone but Jesus, right? Which also makes him the only worthy sacrifice on kind of the other side of the coin. The one whose submission made him infinitely unworthy to, to receive it, yet the son's very willingness to receive that was precious in God's sight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan. Your plan throughout all Creation, as scripture tells us, from before time, you knew that, salva- or that sin would happen, that salvation would be required, and that was your plan 
to sacrifice your son so that we could be saved. What an amazing thing. The most, I don't even have words for it, impactful thing for us. With, without that salvation, there is no hope. There is no purpose. And yet you do all that for us, but not only for us, for your glory. You are an amazing God. Everything that we do, experience, creation, your plan throughout history is for your glory. I pray that we would remember that, that we would remember that it's so easy to think that life's about us, but it's really about you and about your glory. And we were actually created to glorify you. And it's in that glorification that we, when we glorify you, that we find satisfaction. We're fulfilling our purpose. At communion, we consider what you have done for us on the cross. At Christmas, we consider what your son did for us coming to earth. And yet we also look forward with hope that is, insert, that is certain for the day when we will be able to be with you and glorify you and be released from the struggle of selfishness and sin. We look forward to that in Jesus' name. Amen.